everybody. Welcome to episode 31 of the Rich by 36 podcast on Tuesday, October 20th. This episode is brought to you by the Beastly newsletter from richby36.com. Every Monday morning, subscribers to the Beastly receive three trade ideas in their inbox. The Beastly shows you what to buy, explains why you should buy it, and shows you exactly where to sell. It's a blend of fundamental and technical analysis, and it only recommends profitable companies and growing industries, and it's working. Since inception in mid-August, we're outpacing the S&P 500 by over 16%. Head to richby36.com to sign up today. We're offering your first two weeks free, and then it's just 27 bucks a month after that. You can cancel at any time. On today's episode of the podcast, we're going to talk about millennials being the first generation in American history projected to earn less money than their parents. I think there's a lot of evidence to the reasons why that is, but the more I research the situation, the more I realize that this isn't about millennials versus baby boomers. This is a structural issue that goes way deeper than that. So I'm going to dive into that. Coming up on Thursday, just a couple housekeeping notes here. We're going to have Eric Mason rejoining the show. He's an economist. We had a great episode with him a few weeks back talking about the Federal Reserve. And he's going to be rejoining the show to speak about fiscal multipliers and the national debt. You know, the Congressional Budget Office is projecting the national debt to exceed 200% by 2050. And the more I've, you know, I've I've talked a little bit about fiscal multipliers on the show, uh, I'm I'm very interested to have an actual economist come on and and break down how fiscal multipliers change over time and and whether or not uh, the research I presented was, in fact, accurate or, or, or biased. So, looking forward to getting into that. Next week, I'm going to be interviewing a commodities trader, which I'm very excited about. We're going to break down what oil and ethanol trading is, what grain, you know, how do you trade grains and and kind of what that means for the stock market. I'll have more to come on that uh, in Thursday's episode. All right, let's get it. Before we dive into this, there's a uh, house being constructed right across the street. So if you hear a bunch of hammering, my apologies. I'm going to do my best to get that edited out. But I wanted to talk today about this this gap that's arisen in the American experience. For the first time ever, a younger generation is expected to do worse financially than their parents. Millennials, people like me, people who were born between 1981 and 1996, have less wealth accumulated by the time we turn 30 than our parents did. We have fewer assets, we have less money invested, we own fewer homes, and we have higher debt than our parents did at a similar age. And there's there's several, several, I think, obvious factors that are causing the American life experience to diverge between millennials and older generations, including the cost of real estate, wage stagnation, and the rising cost of college, But there also seems to be a contentiousness to this discrepancy that spills over into politics, environmental issues, human rights issues, and and a lot more. Baby boomers, and just for the the sake of this argument, they're going to be the older generation that I'm referencing. But baby boomers are really in denial about the reasons that their children are suffering financially. And in my experience, they've been defensive about their role in in the decline of the American life experience. But the more I researched this, um, 
you know, the more I actually let them off the hook, I'll get into this a little bit later, but I do think it's a structural issue that's facing Americans. And it's, there's a gap between wealthy and the wealthy and everybody else that just continues to grow. Uh, anyway, more on that to come. So millennials, we entered the workforce in, right at the beginning of the great financial crisis, 2008. By October 2009, the unemployment rate in America peaked at 10%. One in 10 willing and able Americans were out of work. As more experienced workers were terminated from jobs suited to their skills and their level of desperation rose, older workers were forced to move down the ladder and to take jobs beneath their experience and pay grade to survive. This isn't unique to the great financial crisis, but when this happens, it creates a kind of cascading effect on unemployment. All of a sudden, there's fewer opportunities for young people entering the workforce to begin accumulating experience in jobs commensurate with their education levels. Millennials, as the youngest group of, uh, of employees in 2008, were disproportionate, disproportionately affected by this cascading unemployment, and our ability to build wealth was stunted. So while the national unemployment rate peaked at 10%, the unemployment rate for 16 to 24-year-olds in 2009 was 18.5%, the highest rate ever recorded. You know, as jobs become scarce, competition becomes more intense, and millennials were competing with applicants with 10 years of experience who were willing to take lower-paying jobs out of desperation. Over a decade later, we're still seeing the effects of the financial crisis on employment demographics. Alternative workforce participation, gig workers, the gig economy, increased sharply in 2007 and 2008 among millennials. And the recession caused high barriers to entry in the job market that recently graduated millennials were, you know, we were forced to find new avenues to support ourselves. And the trend hasn't slowed down. The percentage of individual income received from the alternative, from alternative work, right, from the gig economy has increased since the 2008 recession. In 2008, the percentage of individual income received from gig work was 64%. In 2015, it's at 72%. And intuitively, most gig working millennials make less money than their traditional full-time employee counterparts. It makes sense, right? If you look at just the general millennial population in 2015, the median individual income was about 40,000. For a gig worker, it was around 36. And I'm not just talking to Uber drivers or, you know, Uber Eats. If you haven't already, go check out Fiverr.com, F-I-V-E-R-R.com. You're going to find attorneys, programmers, artists, graphic designers, a host of educated, smart individuals who are contracting their services to make ends meet. And employers know this. They're taking advantage of the situation. A recent study by the Bureau of Labor Statistics found that organizations can save up to 30% on labor cost by opting for contract workers, gig workers, over a full-time one. So we haven't even touched on what's happening in 2020 with the COVID-induced recession, the spike in unemployment. The wealth gap has increased tremendously this year, and, and billionaires have benefited from stay-at-home orders. Think about it. All of the mom-and-pop stores in your area that are struggling – compared to, you know, well, I read the other day, Jeff Bezos could get a $100,000 bonus to every employee that he has and still have more money than he did at the beginning of the pandemic. 
this recession is undoubtedly going to drag on millennials' ability to build wealth and and build experience in the workforce. This is our second massive shock to the economic system in our first 10 years of employment. What's worse, it's it's now starting to affect Gen Z, right? These are the people after millennials. They're graduating college with the highest debt levels of all time. You got a Federal Reserve that's running out of bullets. You got millennials who have been struggling for the last 10 years, also competing with Gen Z's for jobs. And that same sort of cascading employment effect is going to happen. Is it any wonder that people took to the streets a couple of months ago in protests? I mean, do you really think social unrest is over? No, these protests are going to continue until there's some drastic changes made made in the opportunities presented to Americans to build, uh, you know, to build wealth and to to live the American dream, right? So I have three ideas that would make an immediate impact that are actually, I think, relatively easy to implement. Number one, increase funding for schools and teach children about finance. Teach them how credit cards work and about the power of investing. As a society, we are, for the most part, blind to the power that money holds over us. So teach us about money in school. It's the one thing we'll actually use in our day-to-day lives. I can't remember the last time I had to recite all 50 state capitals or do longhand division. Number two, increase the minimum wage to a livable standard. The federal minimum wage is $7.25. If you remember at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, the federal government kicked in an additional $600 a week in unemployment benefits, which contributed to a rise in the national savings rate. A huge percentage of people were making more money on unemployment than they were at their jobs. What the fuck is that? That's a huge issue. That should tell you all you need to know about the state of the job market today. $1,100 a week was a raise to a lot of people working full-time. Just as a side note, did you know that Denmark uh, I think it was 2015, they raised their minimum wage to $20 an hour compared to $7.25 in the United States. And the price of a Big Mac increased by only 80 cents. This bucket of horseshit that they try to sell us about how raising the minimum wage will actually cause hardship to businesses and consumers, it's, it's a load of garbage. Number three, Decrease the cost to attend public universities. And, and this is only for public universities. If you want to go to a private school and pay hand over fist, God bless you. But I didn't know this. During 2017, the University of Texas at Austin received over $396 million in federal funding. That's insane. The same year, the University of Rutgers received over $340 million in federal funding. Colleges receive millions and millions of dollars in taxpayer money and then turn around and raise tuition on the very same taxpayers who are funding them. That's a load of bullshit. It's crazy to me. All right, so these are three changes that aren't drastic measures that will require Herculean efforts to achieve. We're not making Jeff Bezos give up his fortune or we're not banning fracking. These are three simple ideas that can give people a head start compared to how we operate as a, as a society now. And my personal experience with this argument has been 
frustrating and, uh, and derisive. I have, I'm a millennial, obviously I have parents who are baby boomers and the argument with them, you know, it, it goes something like this. They, they talk about, you know, millennials are lazy. We care more about social media than working. We've been given every opportunities to succeed. So why aren't we? And my personal favorite, well, uh, I worked full-time in the summer and was able to pay for college and didn't graduate with any student loans, so why can't you do that? Look, th- these arguments are, are no doubt influenced by the media. I mean, how many articles have we seen over the last couple of years that talk about millennials purchasing avocado toast and frappuccinos and claim that's the reason that we're suffering financially? As a side note, the person who goes to Starbucks the most in my family is my mom. Love you. There's another, but I think there's another aspect to this argument that's often overlooked. Yale economist Lisa Kahn found that people who graduated from college during the deep recession of the early 1980s earned $100,000 less over the next 20 years than their older and younger colleagues, which brings up another point. And this is what I found uh, the more I researched this. Uh, this this argument isn't specific to millennials and baby boomers or Gen Z and Gen X. This is a structural problem that's happening in America. The earnings power of Americans compared to their parents has been declining since 1945. So if you look in 1940, 91.5% of 30-year-olds made more money than their parents when they were 30. It's steadily steadily increased. There was a couple of years in between 1965 and 1975 where it increased a little bit, but the trend has been down. And now obviously we're below 50%. So, you know, look, the media makes this a millennials versus baby boomers thing. And it's not, this is a structural problem. Every successive generation after 1945 has made less money. Now, cynically speaking, just to take a step back, the goal of people in power is to remain in power. And the easiest way to do that is to divert attention away from the problems and make the general population argue amongst themselves about what's wrong. And you create fake issues that distract people from the real problems. Black versus white, Republican versus Democrat, communism versus capitalism, terrorists versus the American people. These are social constructs that effectively consume most people's day-to-day, and give people a a scapegoat to blame their unhappiness on. And they also prevent a spotlight from being shined at the deeper structural issues that are affecting our economy and causing this unhappiness. The most important issue, really, is power versus subjugated and wealthy versus everyone else. So the three things that I suggested you know, teach kids about money in school, uh, stop raising the price of college. And what was the third one? Oh yeah. In- increase the minimum wage. You know, these are things that will never happen fully, right? They'll, they'll inch forward. You know, they, they may raise the federal wage, raise the federal minimum wage to eight bucks, but it'll never be to a livable standard. The, the implementing these three things would decrease the wealthies and the ruling powers hold on us, right? If you, if you educate people about money, 
they're going to make better decisions about money. All if you decrease the cost or you stop raising the cost of college and people don't have to graduate with hundreds of thousands of dollars in student debt, well, then those people maybe they don't have to go work for Jeff Bezos or whoever the you know the the rich guy who owns XYZ company. You know, if you're if you're graduating $200,000 in student loan debt, you're going to have to make a decision pretty quick about look, I I have to pay this off. I got to go work for somebody, right? That's a benefit to the wealthy people, the wealthy class. You know, I've watched this show on Netflix called Babies, and they, they talk about, um, they, they did studies on cognitive development in babies. And, and infants that didn't have to want for basic needs, right? They, they didn't have to self-soothe, which is really the biggest one, where they're just left alone and to cry. Infants who were taken care of, you know, who didn't have to self-soothe, who had parents and there to comfort them, they developed faster than infants who didn't, who had to self-soothe because the infants who are self-soothing are spending brain power and energy on just getting back to neutral where the infants who are taken care of, their brains are able to expand and explore and they often start speaking faster and, and crawling and standing faster. And it's the same, that same, you could expand that across every age of, of human life. If, if humans don't have to worry about the basic needs, how am I going to pay rent? How am I going to, you know, put food on the table? How am I going to meet this $2,000 a month student loan payment? You know, the, 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 the development of society would increase exponentially. Right now, a lot of Americans are self soothing where we should be. And I think I would love to see us, you know, be the other, the other infant that's taken care of. And can you imagine where, how creative our society would be, how much more advanced uh, we would be if we had these sorts of basic needs met $20 minimum wage. Great. You know, don't have to graduate with a whole bunch of money in student loan debt or whatever the case is. Anyway, I'm, I'm rambling at this point. I'm going to turn now, talk about three companies that we recommended in the beastly last week. The first company that we talked about was Datadog. The ticker is DDOG. I love this company. We had a seven to one risk reward set up on this. Datadog operates as a service, as a software platform. They integrate and automate infrastructure monitoring, application performance monitoring, log management, and security monitoring to provide unified real-time observability of their customers' entire technological stack. So in English, there's tons of companies that host their data across a wide range of servers, cloud, cloud services, apps, software devices. Monitoring all the data simultaneously can be a pain. So Datadog's platform just pulls it all, all that fragmented data, they pull it all into one single dashboard. And they generate revenue from the sale of subscriptions to customers using their cloud-based platform. So Datadog employs a, a land and expand business model that focuses on getting their, just getting into the customer's checkbook, right? With a, a product that's easy to adapt and is a short time to value and then expanding once they get in. And as of June 30th of this year, 68% of their customers were using more than one product, 
up from 40% a year earlier. It's working. Additionally, as of June 30th, Datadog had 1,015 customers with annual subscriptions costing more than $100,000 per year. That's up from 594 customers the previous year. Two weeks ago, Datadog's stock hit an all-time high after the company announced a strategic partnership with Microsoft. Microsoft's going to integrate Datadog's dashboard in its cloud platform, Azure, as a first-class service. And that means that companies can set up Datadog uh, automatically on Azure instead of manually migrating the data. Another reason to like Datadog is the mid to long term, in the mid to long term, is their push toward uh, expanding internationally. Right now, only about 24% of the revenue comes from outside North America, but that's growing. And they're actually making significant investments in sales overseas. Uh, They now have offices in Dublin, London, Amsterdam, Paris, Singapore, Sydney, and Tokyo. The push may, you know, they're having to spend some money to do this. It may temporarily mute profit margins, but it's going to pay off in the long term. And to top it all off, Datadog actually just became profitable. In the first half of 2020, the revenue rose 77% year over year to $271.3 million. They booked a net income of $6.8 million compared to a loss of $13 million a year earlier. And if you look at their uh, earnings per share projections over the next four years, look, they just became profitable. They're not looking back. At the end of this year, they're projected to have around 10 cents in earnings per share. At the end of 2023, they're up to 50 cents in earnings per share. What is that, a 500%? I can't do the math off the top of my head. But you want to be in data, cloud, software. This company is in the right industry. They're growing they just became profitable, and we want to we want to get in. We want to have some of this action. So currently, the market research firm Gartner exercised the addressable business opportunity in IT operations to be thirty seven billion. And based on Datadog's twenty nineteen revenue, they currently account for less than one percent of the market. That's significant to room significant room to grow over the coming decade. And if you look at their projected revenue over the next decade, they're going to hit two billion in projected revenue by twenty twenty five. Over eight billion by 2029, and you know, look, they've what are they? They're going to crack 600 million. Um, yeah, they'll, they'll get close to 600 million today. So it's it's a rocket ship going up. Next up was Perkin Elmer. This is a, uh, I think, a pretty short term tactical play for us. It was a one to one risk reward. We bought it at 129. Dollars and ninety-one cents a share, and we had an upside target at uh, one hundred and thirty-eight. The this is all about coronavirus, but anyway, Perkin Elmer has—they've been around over eighty years. They make medical devices, but recently, with the coronavirus, di- diagnostic tests for the coronavirus come in all shapes and sizes. Excuse me, and they. They vary in quality as well. One key test metric, sensitivity, is particularly important because it determines the lower boundary of how many viral particles a diagnostic test can detect. If a test is highly sensitive, it can detect the presence of a very small number of viral uh, particles within a sample. The more sensitive the test, the better. Sensitive tests can detect the infection sooner as patients will have fewer viral particles in their system early on compared to later in the illness. 
Earlier this month, U.S. Food and Drug Administration released a list that ranked the sensitivities of coronavirus tests on the market, effectively creating like a, a winners and losers list uh, of all these companies. And you'll never guess who topped the list with the most sensitive test. It was Perkin Elmer. So PKI is the ticker. They're going to benefit as winter descends over large parts of the globe. People are pushed indoors and there's a resurgence in the virus. We've already seen a second wave of the virus. I think uh, there's been a couple of countries in the EU. I can't think of which ones off the top of my head that have already, they're starting to phase in lockdown again, lockdowns again. I mean, in the long run, there's several reasons to like PKI aside from the obvious COVID tailwinds. They have a dominant market share over uh, prenatal screening. And as somebody who just went through this with a baby, there's a ton of blood tests that you have to do. 80% of those are all Perkin Elmer. And they're in just about every country in the world. And they do have good, so the, uh, there's two reasons to like them. They have not, they've penetrated internationally in both emerging and developed markets. And they, they're in China and India. But there are 22 uh, genetic testing, dis- 22 disorders that we genetic test for in America and compared to six in China and India. And as their economies develop and their middle class grows, the number of things that they're going to start to test for will start to look like us, right? With Down syndrome or, you know, I don't know the names of all these things off the top of my head, but that's a huge opportunity. Um, they only have a 10% market share in those two countries, but that's like, I don't know, over half the world's population. Is as, and as they start testing for more things, it'll benefit Perkin Elmer. The other thing, the other reason to like somebody who has a dominant market share in prenatal testing is gene editing, which is coming. It's pretty soon you're going to be able to, look, if my kid has Down syndrome, they're going to be able to go in before he's born and change his DNA so that he doesn't have that. And that's only going to continue to, to, you know, to get crazier and crazier. Pretty soon there'll be super warriors and, and all that sort of stuff. But in order to find out whether or not you need to do gene editing, you got to take a prenatal test, Perkin Elmer. The last trade for the week, which actually uh, hasn't done uh, super well. We bought it at market open for $8.91. I think it's down to, to high sevens right now. But we looked at... OESX, Orion Energy Systems. They create state-of-the-art LED lighting. They have over 20,000 customizable lighting products uh, with various commercial application. And amid all the, the pandemic, they actually, um, they've created this roof, you know, the ceiling that you can put in your warehouse or whatever. And it uses LED lights to kill mold and fungus and other sorts of bacteria. But what makes them special is their connection to the Internet of Things. And I'm just going to quote them, uh, their CEO, on the February 6th, 2020 earnings call. Importantly, a quote, so importantly, a growing portion of our projects involve innovative lighting controls and Internet of Things solutions, which increase, which further increase the importance and potential value of new LED lighting systems. Increasingly, lighting systems are the base of a valuable facility-wide network we call the smart ceiling grid or connected ceiling. In this context, our systems provide not only light and energy management capabilities, but can also serve as the nerve center that supports a growing array of Internet of Things solutions that collect and manage data in order to derive a range of business performance improvements. 
For example, IoT applications can collect valuable movement or activity data in a warehouse, manufacturing facility, or retail environment. This data is used to support management decisions, making manage this manage this data is used to support management decisions regarding energy consumption, utilization, asset tracking, maintenance requirement, overall facility usage, and more. And if you look at their long-term end quote, if you look at their long-term customers, GE, Coca-Cola, Kroger, Office Max, Office Depot, Ford, the United States Navy. Best Buy, Walmart, they have some huge, huge customers. I think it's really cool. They're going to have, the, the Internet of Things is coming, and most anecdotally, it's used like, yeah, you're going to be able to tell your oven to turn on with your voice, but I didn't even think about what it could mean for power grids, for LED lights. Um, the, Orion was recently added to the Russell 2000, which is a small cap index that, that tracks that a ton of ETFs tracks. So that'll also be a benefit for their stock. It'll create buying demand as well as all these ETFs have. As they rebalance, more money comes in. They have to actually go out and buy Orion's shares. And because of their size, they're not covered by a ton of analysts and investment banks. So I think there's some opportunity to, to capture some hidden value as well. We haven't hit our downside stop loss on this yet. So we're still in the position and we're going to ride it out. And, you know, we, we think that Look, we, we put in a stop loss at 687 a share. We bought it 891. We think there's a real significant chance it goes up to 1324 a share. That'd be a 50% gain on our original position. And then we have a second target up at $22.66. So this may take a little bit longer than we originally thought, but we are still looking pretty forward now. So that'll do it for this week's podcast. Thank you for joining me on the very first video podcast that we've done. We have a new YouTube channel, the Rich by 36 YouTube channel. As always, you can reach me at George at Rich by 36. Follow me on Twitter at Rich underscore by underscore 36. You can also find me on Instagram at Rich by 36. Talk to you on Thursday. Close.